0: Dear Heavenly Father, we are coming here before you before the throne of grace this morning, and we 're asking Lord for your Holy Spirit to be present in this place. Lord, may people hear your words and not my words is my humble prayer in jesus name. Amen Most everyone is familiar with thy, with the Titanic story. But many often overlook the cheer contrast between the lower and the upper levels of the ship. On the upper decks of the ship, of the Titanic, we see that there was an amazing luxury. There was opulence. There was riches. It was a star contrast between the lower decks where there was poverty and Passengers recite it. Of course, a few days later, after the Titanic sailed, it was struck by an iceberg, and disaster ensued in all that were aboard the ship. No matter their social economic status, no matter how they felt in that moment, immediately after the tragic iceberg, we notice in that moment that there was a disturbing contrast. For those that were on top of the ship, the tragedy was still that they were oblivious to what was going on. But for those that was on the lower deck, reality struck. Those that were up in the upper deck, everything still looked magnificent. Everything looked great. Life was great. But for those in the lower decks where the iceberg hit, it was a different story because soon enough, the issues of water gushing and flowing through the hallways began to rise to the upper decks. And in the final moments, the titanic broke up, and it was succumbed by the icy depths. Sooner or later, the issues of life's lower decks, through they remain oblivious, will nevertheless rise to the top. Truthfully, many of us here are on the same boat. We have been broken up and we have been sunk down, And it feels like our boat is shredding water. It feels like we are sunking down. In fact, it feels like our entire world is going under. On the public sphere, in the outer decks of our life, on our public life, we might show people Uh, through our social life, or just as we go around and we greet each other, we might usually show great things, even impressive things. We look because we like to put ourselves as competent, capable people. But when we take a closer look beneath the surface, underneath the rubble, and often in private moments, We all here, we know. We know the truth that lies beneath. We see people's true brokenness, debilitating shame, and so much more. We see the icy waters rising. And right there, right there, in the lower decks of the heart, deep within ourselves, That's where our spiritual life takes true shape and texture. And whether we are a newborn Christian or whether we've been following Jesus for some time now, most everyone is asking, how do we live in a rhythm and practice a life that connects to the presence of Jesus? Our text this morning we are beginning a new series, a new vision series this morning in Rhythm and Practice, a short series about the need to realign our hearts in the presence of Jesus. How much is needed for that for us today? A vision about what type of church we want to become. What type of people do we want to be? We want to be a people who are in rhythm and in practice, intentionally placing ourselves in the presence of Jesus. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew 7, 24. This is a famous passage that Jesus concludes the best sermon ever told. Some have called it the kingdom manifesto. Some have called it the kingdom of ethics. And Jesus talks here how we ought to live with God and others. And as as He shares in His famous Beatitudes, the blessings for the poor and the meek, and the sermon elevates His expectations for love and for loving others by saying that murder is not just taking a life, but hating a life. Adultery is not just Infidelity, but it is lust and greed of the heart. This is where he shares the need to turn the other cheek when you, if you are slapped, and to go the extra mile for your enemies. So here, he mentions giving to the needy. He mentions that we are to pray. The Lord's prayer, not to worry, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Here he warns about judging others, about the challenges that continually we have to face of seeking and asking and knocking. And even warns about false prophets and preachers and advises us to look at their fruit as their genuine source of their connection to God. So after all of that is said, Jesus is about to close his sermon. And to close his sermon, he says the following words. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus summarizes how how people might react to hearing his teaching. And people react in two different ways. First, there is someone who not only hears and understands what Jesus says, but does it. Such a person is like an individual who has built his house on a foundation on the rock. On the other hand, the second is someone who is either does not hear Jesus's words and does not act on it and or hears it. And this one is like A foolish person who built a house on a sandy foundation. It is so tempting to think that Jesus is drawing here from his previous experience. After all, wasn't he a builder by trade? Maybe he's giving guidance as a carpenter or as a builder from his previous experience to a potential customer who wished to build his home might have good views, might have excellent access, might have a convenient location, but we know that that house would not stand because it was not a, is, not, is not a suitable foundation on which the house was built. In other words, not, uh, not acting on the words of Jesus is like ignoring the advice of a builder and putting up a house where its foundations can be eroded and the house collapses. Jesus teaches us a form of foundation is a life that is well lived. But it is only if we listen and we act on it. The language that Jesus uses this is to conclude his great sermon taps into the ancient well of Judaism known as the wisdom literature, which we all are familiar with in the Proverbs, in the songs of Solomon and others, a genre of literature in the system of thinking that is lost to us now in the modern world today, but it was common to the listeners of Jesus' time. And wisdom is not intelligence. It's not necessarily acquisition of information, because we all here must have a lot of information. So just check your pockets or at your purse. You have a little device there that you can Google things. But just because we have all that information in our pockets doesn't make us wiser than our ancestors were. It's not like when it comes by education, by wisdom. Simply put, a wise person, according to Scripture, is the one who not only hears and understands what Jesus says, but puts it into practice. Gathering data from Scripture and doctrine is not the key factor to a life that stays deeply connected to the presence of Jesus. Scripture describes two types of people, the wise and the fool. The wise are those who are upright, have integrity, pursue good, are trustworthy, They go out of their way to be kind, they they attend the weak, they attend the the vulnerable. On the other hand, you have the fools which are gullible, they're irrational, they're sluggers, they're senseless, and their lives lead to the grave. Jesus takes the ancient and the rich literary tradition of wisdom in the end of his famous sermon, and what he uses virtually is two constructor workers. He uses two builders, two foundations. We don't know if this is the first house or if this is a retirement home. But one thing we do know, that in this life, we only have two options. Only two options, to build well or to build badly. But everyone is building because you and I are designers by design. You can either design your home on the rock or you can, dis- or you can do it on the sand. But you don't have the option of not design- designing it. Jesus is the wisest teacher who ever lived. He knows that you're building and that you are designing and that you are crafting a life. You either craft your life based on God's word or one that does not internalize the words of Jesus. But in the life, we don't get the option of not crafting some sort of life. There's only two options. So Jesus paints before us two destinies. You can either craft a life that internalizes the words of Jesus into rhythm into practice. You can craft a life that results in the or you can craft a life that results in the chaos when life comes your way. The difference between a wise person and a foolish person is not the opportunities afforded to them nor the chance that life will throw at them at the rainstorms. Instead, it is how they relate to the opportunities afforded to them. You see, practice. What an interesting word, practice. Jesus does not suggest that the wise person who faces life storms are the ones who built a good house. It's the person who hears the words, It's not a person who memorizes. It's not a person who who just hears the words and studies them. No. It's the person who hears the words and puts them into practice. What good is it to hear something if we don't put it into practice? What good is to do and continue to do the same thing over and over again again? Expecting a different result, but retaining the same result. How do I become the type of person who does not just do things or does good things here and there? How do I become a kind of person who it becomes instinctual? And I'm not talking about here about legalism, I'm talking about obedience. If Jesus says it, I will do it. And how do, how do I make it so that my life is not just I'm laying a brick here, a brick there. I'm laying a nice stairwell here and there. But it's, it, it becomes instinctual. My natural reaction is to do what Jesus does. The wise person is the type of person who has developed the kind of character over time and instinctively designs a well-founded house. For our purposes today, we just want to ask the question, how do I become the kind of person who instinctively pursues God? The first thing, my first reaction when I wake up in the morning is to pursue God. The first thing, as I'm going through the grocery store, my instinctively reaction is to pray. How do I live in rhythm and in practice, a life that connects to the presence of Jesus? I came to faith during my freshman uh, year in college. And it's kind of a crazy story because my parents allowed me to uh, after I graduated from high school, they allowed me to go to Puerto Rico and to study abroad. I was just 17 years old. I was new in the faith. And this is the most critical part of your life. As a 17-year-old coming out of high school, this is the, this is the time where you have to decide whether the doctrines, the beliefs of your fathers, of your parents, are they your beliefs? No longer is mom and dad there with you. You're there by yourself in a dormitory, in an island abroad. You have to make decisions for yourself. What am I going to believe? I've been believing this, this thing about Jesus for so long. I have been journeying through the Bible. I have been going to Sabbath school. I have been going through the motions in, 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 in church. But this is real life how does how what am i going to do now mom's not there to remind me that i need to do my devotional and in those moments in life when you're short of money because most students were poor we have no money you really have to decide who are you going to serve what you're going to do am i going to rely on god and accept him wholeheartedly Lord, you promised that you're going to provide for me. And he provided several times when I had no food. Lord, I was praying during a a sermon, Lord, please touch someone's heart so that at the end of the church service they can ask me to go to their home so I can eat with them. I had no food. And every time it happened. And so... As a college student, you go on several journeys, formative years, trying to figure out what, is, what, what does it mean to be a disciple. And what I can tell you is I became very good in reading my Bible, learning about God. I was a whiz in Sabbath school. I knew memory texts like this. I was always raising my hand and and the teacher was always like, no, somebody else, somebody else. Whether it was listening to sermons, reading large parts of scripture, reading about scripture. I was participating in choirs. I was really active in the spiritual life of the the school. Let me tell you something. I grew exponent- exponentially in my experience with God. But over the years, I began to sense I was getting stuck. I felt like I had reached a plateau in my relationship with God, and I had learned a lot about doctrine and scripture, but there were certain areas in my life they were not maturing. We can be doing the same thing over and over again for 20 plus years and still not mature as a Christian. Just doing the same things over again doesn't mean that you're maturing as a Christian. And I knew that I wanted to change, but I didn't know how. It wasn't until I learned a fundamental truth that we'll explore over the next couple of weeks. There are certain practices that we as followers of Jesus are crucial that places us in the presence of Jesus. And and through these practices, through these formation character blocks, they begin to change us. Because information transfer alone is not equal to transformation. During the age of enlightenment, there was a shift in the way that we saw ourselves. Then now we know that that is wrong. But at the time, statements like I think, therefore I am, by Rene Descartes, communicated the idea that you and I are primar- primarily thinking things. If you gain just enough information on said issue, if you can you can determine the change. If you reason about it, if you think about it, then you can change it. So if you want to go from a, to B, all you need to do is to think about it and to learn about it. I don't know how many of you woke up early this morning and went for a walk. It was pretty brisk out there this morning in the 50s. But during this type of weather, many of us, especially, I would, I would, I would uh, surrender to the ladies here, but... We like, you know, warm drinks, you know. We, we like a hot chocolate or, or something warm in the mornings. And if you know me, I love not just any type of hot chocolate. I love the hot chocolate. Norma probably knows. Abuelita chocolate. The hot chocolate. And if you haven't tried it, let me tell you, you're missing out. So hot chocolate. The problem is, I know that hot chocolate, especially this type of hot chocolate, has sugar. And I know that sugar is not good for my body. So sure, we can debate that you know, some type of chocolate is good, and, and it's not, and the benefits outweigh the, the, the rewards, but you know, we can say the same thing about fruit, right? Which the detriment of artificial sugar, right, I know that it's not good for me, but why do I crave it? Why do I want it? Why do, when it's kind of cold and it gets this type of weather, why do I have such little restraint when it comes to the holiday season and it's cold outside and I'm just dreaming of that hot chocolate? (laughs) The ancient North African theologian would argue from the Bible that it is not because... The center of each of us is not a brain, but at the center of each of us is a heart. It's a person. At the center of the human person is not a brain that needs enough data, but a heart that loves. A heart that loves. Augustine argues that you are a lover first and a thinker second. There's a famous uh, text in the Bible, 2 Samuel 16. Many of us are familiar with that text where it says, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Why? Because Tim Keller puts it this way. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable. And the emotions find value. And will finds doable. We are not motivated by rational thinking, but by our desire. Translation, Edwin is not motivated by the scientific data on hot chocolate. He is motivated by his desire To love hot chocolate. When it comes to our life with God, what we might call sanctification, Paul calls transformation. Or growing in godliness or in holiness. We can believe the lie. We can believe the lie that suggests that I can think myself into holiness. I can think myself into holiness. I can think myself into transformation. But we just talked about the hot chocolate. The example. Let's talk about something much more heavier. Intellectually, I may believe loving my neighbor is the right thing to do. And it's right and it's true. But why can I keep myself from responding with anger and lashing out at others when they wrong me. Intellectually, I hear the words of Jesus resonating in my mind and in my, in my ears. Telling me why you're staying up late. Why are you watching those things you're not supposed to be watching? Why you're watching your phone late at night, thinking that nobody's watching you. I intellectually, I know that that's not right. That's not, that's not building my life towards Jesus. It's deconstructing my life towards Jesus. Why do I have a bad habit? Why do I have problems with cigarettes? Why do I have problems with alcohol? Why is it my life is not engaging a life with the Holy Spirit? Why is it so hard? When my friends invite me to have a good time and then temptation hits and that's where I'm weak. Why do I believe in sexual purity that is necessary for a human flourishing, but then I lose control? I stay too late. I sleep with my phone on my bed and then I start watching things that are pornographic in nature. And then I lose all control. You see, the scriptures, they suggest that the deep within us is a heart. And the heart is a lover and desires things. Through God made your heart like a compass pointing to the true north. Now because of the fall and the entrance of sins into the world, the problem is not the love and desire the problem is that our love is, is in the wrong things. We love the wrong things. And if you want to know and really believe, and if you want to know what is truly following, if you want to know what, has, what, what sin has on you, you should not reflect primarily on intellectual beliefs. You must reflect on the rhythms and practices of your lives what direction your life is turning to. In the 1950s psychologist Donald Hebb axiom said, nerves that fire together, wire together. Another way, the decisions that we make wire and rewire our brains. Q, there's a current literature literature culture out there especially if you read books like James Clear on atomic habits, ever-growing an approach of popularity that talk about self-control, a contemporary neuroscience that, that understands neuroplasticity, the reality that things we do do something to us. But you see, it's not enough to think. It's not enough to think it whether it is exercise or learning a new language, every single one of us have a choice. You make that choice, a potential choice that will shape the kind of person who flourishes on the rock or crumbles on the sand. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went to play with one of my friends up in the Northwest in the Pacific Northwest. And if you know anything about uh, southern Washington and northern Oregon, uh, they're, they're really big on disc golf. They have a lot of uh, pro courts up there. And I was facing against my friend, which I hadn't seen in a long time, but he lives there. So he, he goes disc golfing almost every single day. And, you know, to no surprise, he was better than me. More tactical, more savvier, all of that. Of course, I haven't even touched a a disc golf course here because it's been so hot to even go out there and practice. But now, for the next months, whenever I go see him again, I'm not going to try to beat him. I will train to beat him. You see... What it is not it's not if i' it's not strong will and good intentions. we can have strong will and good intentions all we want. What I need is a lifestyle that situates me to become the kind of person who lives and plays like disc golf players who does who that might mean. Maybe I, I need to eat differently. I need to exercise. You see, this golf is a rhythm game. I may need to practice more. Yes, differently. And me losing doesn't mean that my friend is better than me. But their spiritual life is similar. If I want the disc golf life of my friend, I need a lifestyle like my friend. Every single day, as he's going to the Adventist school there in Battleground, there's a little nine hole disc golf course. He stops by, he throws a couple holes, he goes to work. That takes commitment. Same thing with Jesus and building our life in his words. If we want his life, we must adopt his lifestyle. If we want peace, We must adopt his practices. Many of us are grouped, myself included, years ago, are stuck in a relationship with God because we have adopted the ideas without internalizing them into practices. We feel like we are stuck. Where do I go from here in my relationship with God? How do I grow? How do I mature? We may have accepted the doctrinal truths but we have not learned to craft them into practices in our lives. For you see, our modern life and the craftingness of our life in our modern style and even our modern church structure is really difficult for us to craft those things in our lives because we come here, hear a sermon, we come to Sabbath school, And what is that doing? Just receiving more information, more information. And don't get me wrong. I like Sabbath school. I like sermons. I like receiving more information. But it is possible for the church to to come to the church and to receive more information, transfer, and gain knowledge. But maybe that's not enough. But Jesus calls us to be followers to his disciples, and to some have called it apprentices. To be a disciple is to be disciplined in our lives. It's not disciplined as in punishment, but discipline like practice. So following Jesus is less like being a student in a university and receiving a lecture, but more like a coach. It's more like a coach and a player. It's more like practicing an instrument and learning, than learning music theory. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at different practices that intentionally place us at the presence of Jesus. Because I'm convicted this morning that if we don't practice the way of Jesus, if we don't put the mind over matter, If we are just going through the motions, then we are not building on the rock. We are building on a sandy foundation. We as individuals, as the church, don't need to panic if we don't get it all right the same way. Oh, I forgot to do devotional today. Oh, I forgot to pray. We don't need to panic because our hearts want unhealthy things. But we can intentionally choose and decide here today to develop rhythms and practices that are rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit that shape us over time and reorder our desires. I want that in my life. I don't want to just play church. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want Jesus to truly live in every aspect and area of my life. And to conclude this morning, in 1914, there's a story of the year where the Titanic sank. Another nautical tragedy occurred off the coast of Virginia on a foggy day steamboat called the Monroe was rammed by a merchant ship called the Nuntucket. Sadly, Monroe sunk along with 41 sailors and the captain of the Nantucket was grilled and charged for that tragedy, Captain Edward Johnson. And when he went to his court hearing, more information came to light and they were able to see that the steering compass that the Captain Johnson had had deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass, which was nothing out of the extraordinary because most captains during that day would travel with their compass deviated. See, you see, that was not the problem that his compass was deviated. The problem was that his compass had deviated and he had gone with that compass for over a year. He didn't have it adjusted regularly. Maybe, just maybe, this morning, my compass needs to be recalibrated. Maybe, just maybe, my spiritual life needs to be recalibrated. Maybe the same things that I've been doing in my spiritual life, need to be adjusted you see Captain Johnson had not adjusted his compass and what seemed functional despite its flaw proved deadly later on maybe my compass needs to be recalibrated this morning Jesus, what, what is it in my life that needs to be readjusted? That needs to be recalibrated? Because maybe, just maybe, I think that everything is safe at home, but what proves functional may soon be deadly. The fool is the one who hears Jesus' words but leads them in the head. The wise person is the one who moves from the head into practice. She or she he or she is the person who takes the words of Jesus seriously, who internalizes The words of Jesus that wants to live a fulfilled and filled life of destiny in Jesus and puts them into practice. And when everything is done, when I dig deeper beyond the superficial, when I internalize the words of Jesus, in my life when we enter into rhythm and practice which intentionally places us in the presence of Jesus and we reflect in our life despite the rain despite the storms of life despite the fog despite the worry of this world we will not fall Because we have built on the rock. Shall we stand for our final hymn? Dear Heavenly Father, as we leave this place this morning, Lord, we desire to be with you. We want, Lord, for you to be in us. Lord, be with our congregation, be with our families, be with us, Lord. We need you. And Lord, may we be intentional about building on a solid foundation on the rock. May we incorporate rhythms and practices that bring us closer into the presence of Jesus. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.